This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of June 6th, 2016, by George Allen England. It's read for us by Julie Davis of A Good Story is Hard to Find. It runs 52 minutes. It was first published in Collier's April 22nd, 1916. And we will be discussing it afterwards. June 6th, 2016, by George Allen England. Ellsworth Stanton yawned, stretched luxuriously in his wood fiber sheets, sheets used but once and then burned, and opened his eyes to as fine a morning as the National Meteorological Bureau had ever furnished the United Pan-American Republic. The telemetric dial on the vitrified porous wall, a wall which ensured perfect and draftless ventilation at all times, caught his eye. This dial, etherically operated from the Time Department at Washington, told him that the hour was 7.30. Stanton frowned, displeased. Then, catching sight of a charming young woman's stereograph, natural to the life in every minutest detail of light, shade, color, and perspective, which seemed to be looking at him from a synthetic ebony frame, he smiled despite his vexation at having overslept. But I ought to have been up an hour ago, thought he, today of all days when I'm to see her. He threw back the clothes, slid out of bed, and walked into his bedroom. An ozonated sea shower quickly refreshed him. He brushed his teeth with one of the new vibratory brushes, trimmed his hair with the electric clipper, and then rubbed his face with solvent shaving soap. After a wait of only ten seconds, he washed off this soap and was now clean-shaven. Thank heaven I didn't live in the old days of razors, brushes, strops, and all that nonsense, thought he. What a grind life must have been when the governor was my age. Quickly he dressed, putting on first his paper silk underwear. No stupid, unsanitary, costly laundry work now hampered the daily changing of linen. These paper silks, despite their elegance, were now so cheap that everybody threw them into the municipal incinerating tubes after one wearing, together with all the fiber dishes, table linen, cooking utensils, knives, forks, spoons, and so on after each meal. The era of woman's enslavement to the wash tub and dishpan had long ago happily departed. Paper silk shirts, collars, and cravats, too, had supplanted all others. Stanton wondered, as he dressed, that people had ever really had things done up in the old, expensive, mussy way. Dressed for business, he rapped at his father's door. "'Coming, Dad?' he queried. "'Be with you in a minute,' answered the voice of Stanton, Sr. "'Go on down to breakfast. I'll join you there.' Stanton took the elevator to the civic buffet that served his suburban section by means of the commissariat tube system." He sat down, glanced over the menu, and punched his order on the aluminum buttons. In less than three minutes, the sealed conveyor plopped into the pocket. He broke the seal with his identification key and surveyed his breakfast with satisfaction. Mm, strawberries of the finest with cream, an alligator pear, a protose omelet, nutritive wafers, and a crava. 
This crava was a particular favorite with him, a new harmless beverage made from the Papuan lentius bean, discovered in 2012 by Howard Oldham of the International Comestibles Bureau. As Stanton was breakfasting with fletcheristic deliberation, nobody hurried now at meals. His father came in and sat down opposite him. The elder man looked annoyed. "'Great day, Governor,' commented Stanton, smiling. "'Great nothing,' grunted his father. Stanton Sr. had that morning neglected to take his rejuvenating bath, and in consequence was feeling peevish. He was seventy-six, you understand, and looked nearly fifty, which was unusual. The rejuvenating bath, universally used by all who felt the hand of time, produced a voltage of more than one million so tremendous a force that it not only passed harmlessly through the human system, but also thoroughly renewed the tissues. Especially it prevented sclerosis of the arteries. With its aid, many a man had passed the 150-year mark, and some had gone to 175 or better. "'What's the matter, Dad?' asked Stanton, choosing a cigar from his pocket humidor. The other only shrugged his shoulders and continued fletcherizing in silence. Stanton put the cigar, already perforated so that it needed no clipping, into his mouth. The weed lighted itself. No more matches or electric lighters, thank heaven. The mere act of drawing air through the cigar sufficed to generate a spark in the thermocell at the end of the cigar. Silence came between them. Stanton waited for his father, smoking with contentment and glancing about him at the well-filled tables. Now and then he nodded to a friend. When the elder man had finished, they both slipped dishes and refuse into the conveyor, which Stanton dropped into the waste tube to be whisked away to the reduction plant. At this plant, of course, all waste products were converted into producer gas to run gas engines for electric lighting machinery. The old-time waste of New York's refuse by dumping it into the sea incidentally contaminating the harbor, had long since given place to this better method. Some advanced thinkers were even now advocating using the dead in like manner. But this innovation, though clearly some time to be adopted, had as yet not displaced simple non-commercial cremation. "'Ready?' asked Stanton. "'Ready?' asked he. "'Mm-hmm. All right, let's be going.' Both arose. They passed through the buffet and out the exit to the suburban express tube. "'Smoke, Governor?' asked Stanton. His father glumly declined, even though the tobacco would have tempted an anchorate. Stanton's cigars represented the last word in tobacco culture, and as money was reckoned in the old days would have cost upwards of three cents apiece." a reckless figure for this new day of cooperation, and of prices consequently lowered to figures undreamed of a hundred years before. These cigars were specially made for him from plants grown under colloid on the Isle of Pines. The old man felt keen annoyance that his son should be one of the decreasing number of men who still held to the habit. He often lectured Ellsworth on the evils of even this mild tobacco, practically free from nicotine, but the young man had until now remained obdurate. "'What's wrong with you this morning, Dad?' asked Ellsworth as they reached the platform. "'You're plainly out of sorts. No bad news from that Patagonian ordeal, I hope.' His brown eyes narrowed quizzically. 
Stanton Sr. cast a look of displeasure on his son and fingered the gray mustache he was still old-fashioned enough to wear. "'Well, Ellsworth,' he answered gruffly, "'you might as well know. "'You understand perfectly well that I disapprove of Alice Haynes. "'If you persist, I shall certainly have to dissolve our partnership, "'which I emphatically don't want to do unless you drive me to it.' "'Persist?' smiled Stanton. I'm not the only one that's persisting, as things are now. That's just the trouble, snapped his father. I know what's going on, and I won't have it, you understand. Why, what's the matter with Alice? demanded Ellsworth. I'm sure she's everything a man could. Oh, as a girl, she's all well enough, I suppose, though I've never met her personally, answered the old gentleman. "'It's the way this ridiculous romance of yours has been conducted that angers and repels me. "'I may be an old fogey in my views—possibly am—but I can't reconcile myself to this new-fangled idea of a woman courting a man.' "'You forget, Dad, that the right of woman's proposal came in as a fully established custom more than a quarter of a century ago.' "'Why, haven't women got as much right as men to make their choice and declare it? "'My Lord, Father, you'll be quibbling over woman's suffrage next. "'If you must entertain such moss-back notions, for heaven's sake, "'keep them to yourself and don't—' "'That's all very well, Ellsworth,' growled the old gentleman. "'Suffrage, yes, I admit that's right and just. "'But this other matter of letting women pursue men—' "'Why, Dad?' They always had that right one year and four. Leap year dates back for centuries. This is only the extension of a very ancient custom. I know, I know, but the length this matter has gone to now is outrageous. The idea, Ellsworth, letting a girl call on you, send you presents. Good God, in the good old days we men and we alone did the wooing, the proposing and all that. A woman who made so bold. Tempora mutantur, Dad. Yes, and for the worse in some things. It's no use arguing, Ellsworth. This sort of thing repels me in every fibre. I can't and won't tolerate a daughter-in-law of this new type. She must be bold, brazen, and unfeminine. Do you know, Alice? Did you ever even so much as lay eyes on her? No, but very well, then answered the young man decisively. We won't discuss the matter. This isn't business, this is personal. Your judgment won't hold me here. You'll find you're mistaken, the old man retorted. I warn you fairly, look out. I'll stop your nonsense, or... Here's our train, interrupted Stanton, smiling with irritating assurance. Don't get excited, Dad. It increases the blood pressure, remember? And it's shocking bad for the nerves. The swift and silent arrival of a tubular express gliding on its air films put an end to a discussion that promised to become acrimonious. Father and son entered one of the cars, rather an old-fashioned steel cylinder, and took seats. No one, of course, was standing. People would no more have thought of standing in a public conveyance than they would have thought of paying. Both these annoyances belonged to a dead age when private profit still held transportation in its grip. 
the barbarism of overcrowding, and the graft of exacting payment for this service of prime necessity had become as extinct as the ancient system of weights and measures, which the neometric standards had long since replaced. A delightful freshness and coolness from the ozonators filled the car. Noiselessly, smoothly, it slid away toward the commercial zone on Manhattan, a 48-mile run that would require not more than 18 minutes at the outset. For a little while, the two men, one vexed, the other well-pleased, sat gazing at the teleelectric news service placards which occupied the spaces once reserved for advertising. On these appeared all the world's latest events, dispatch by dispatch, and as each item faded from the vitroid plaques, another replaced it. The more vital dispatches were supplemented by miniature movies wirelessly transmitted. Presently, Stanton Sr. frowned as a commercial news item appeared, glowed brightly for a moment, and then faded. "'We've got to tell those girls of ours to be more careful hereafter,' he growled to his son. "'They mustn't talk on the outside. That's flat.' "'Why, what's up?' asked Ellsworth. "'How do you know they've been talking?' "'Oh, I know it all right enough.' Before I was out of bed this morning, I got a telemitic dispatch from the central bourse. What do you think? Well, what? The amount of our per diem tax demanded yesterday by the Credit Reserve Board was the exact amount due. Ellsworth only smiled. This day of days, which he had planned to mean so very much to him, could not be marred by any such petty annoyances as a CRB tax. In spite of the elaborate rationality and automatic mechanical precision of the world about the young man, an altogether unaccountable but delicious madness throbbed in his breast. He blew a ribbon of smoke into the ionated air of the car and began humming a little love song, up in the airline with my Caroline, the song which had not only made a smashing hit in the greater New York of 28,750,000 souls, but had also swept the entire republic from the state of Labrador to the territory of Patagonia. Stanton Sr. fumed with annoyance but said no more. His son's mood quite defied him. Soon the train drew up, at a reduced speed of fifty miles an hour, beside the moving system of the terminal, the vast circular system of platforms, rather let us say, that, by means of graduated velocities, enabled passengers to alight without delay from suburban trains. Both men arose. The old gentleman's humor could hardly have been worse. Having to use the tube irritated him always beyond measure. He detested the tube. This morning he had taken it only because his touring plane was out of order with a broken anti-gravitator, one of the latest 2016 models, capable of doing 250 an hour, when no air cops were looking. "'Watch your shifts,' warned a policewoman as the crowd scattered over the reducing zones toward the distributing platforms. There the two men stopped a moment, waiting the opening of the Cortland Street upper-level slide. A nervous, fidgety old lady close by was heckling a patient official in a meteorological booth. "'It's ten degrees too warm here, I tell you,' she was scolding. "'I've a good mind to report you. I'll 
take your index number anyhow. I can't and won't stand it. We need rain, and we simply must have more mid-oceanic breezes. It's an outrage the way we stifle. I've paid my rain tax, I'll have you know. The slide opened, and father and son entered. Here, take your time, exclaimed Stanton Sr. as a fellow passenger elbowed him. This is no place to use your tele-auto. The other merely shrugged his shoulders as the sliding floor began to stretch aloft up the chute, swift moving in its middle portion, but slower at top and bottom, and quite unmindful of the other passengers, continued to hold his little iridium antennae aloft. "'I protest, sir,' insisted Stanton Sr. "'Beg pardon,' apologized the other, "'but I've just got an urgent telepathic call from Hong Kong, and—' He did not finish, but bent his brows with attention, taking the message. A few men and women peered curiously at him, for this latest of all inventions was still recent enough to attract some attention. His message finished. The man lowered his antennae, folded them, and stowed them in the pocket of his spun-wood waistcoat. "'Dear me, it's fortunate I got that right.' he remarked to the woman at his side. Go right along to the office, Miss Clark. I'll get off at the next transversal and go down the sub-Atlantic tube. The Liverpool matter? the girl queried. Yes, I must be there at 13.30 by the latest, and then it's 9.10 already. Back tonight, sure. Meantime, if Hendricks calls, tell him. His words were lost as the Stantons moved forward, walking up the swift-soaring slide. Two minutes later, they had landed on the moving viaduct, 1,575 feet aloft, which would bring them to their offices in the Alto building, a 210-story glass and aluminum structure of a recent, though not the very latest, type. Stupendous in area, it extended from Cortland Street to the site of the one-time battery, now obliterated by the concrete fill which made Staten Island an integral part of the city. On the roof of this building stood the Tesla Master Station, with etheric control of more than half of all the transatlantic autocraft, whether aerial, surface, or submarine. Father and son entered the building at the 195th story. As they passed through the anti-pulvo chambers just inside the entrance, ionized air currents effectively removed all dust from their persons, for this was a dustless age— perfectly and universally aseptic. Even the aluminum labor disks that had replaced money had to be sterilized no less often than once in 48 hours, under stringent penalties, and paper mediums of hand-to-hand -hand exchange had, praise be, long since vanished from the earth. Down a wide fiber-felted corridor, the two Stantons proceeded, with the rest of the incoming tenants. Not a footfall could be heard. Buildings and streets were now all noise-deadening, in accordance with the stringent regulations of the entire Metropolitan Area Board. The old-time clangor of great cities had become as obsolete as epidemics or diseases of any kind whatsoever. Noise and infection had, in fact, become social crimes, punishable as such. Young Stanton paused a moment at the huge registration directory of the building to note that the little red glow beside his name was burning properly. Stanton, G, 11,862, was properly illuminated. The red meant, of course, that he had not yet reached his office. 
On arriving there and plugging in with his key, the color would change to green. By cross-connections all over the city, any individual could immediately discover whether or not any other individual were at home or in his office. The archaic confusion of wirelessing about to see if people were in had been almost entirely done away with by this system, and also by means of Willard Paul's visualizing audiphone. Arriving at their offices, the Stantons busied themselves, each in his own way. The father, without a word, walked through into his private room, took off his outer coat, and slipped into his office kimono. The cares of the day at once absorbed him. Ellsworth, however, had another and more weighty matter than mere business on his mind. He sat down at his desk of aluminum and porcelain and picked up the letter tube that lay waiting in the metal cul-de-sac. Hastily unscrewing it, he shook out the missives. At sight of one, postmarked Peak Islands, Maine, his eyes lighted with anticipatory joy. Good little girl, he whispered as he slit the envelope with the tiny steel blade embedded along its top. Business may come and business may go, but she, she never forgets. With no less eagerness than as though he had been a troubadour lover of the 14th century, Ellsworth Stanton, man of affairs in the year of grace 2016, leaned back and with a smile of contentment read the letter from the lady of his heart's desire. Despite the wireless, the autophone, and other apparatus, the archaic art of letter writing had not yet wholly gone out of use. Among lovers, especially, the written word was still cherished. A few even wrote poetry. But not all Stanton's passion for Alice Haynes had been able to drive him to quite such extravagances, comparable to knight-errantry if practiced by a twentieth-century lover. Alice, indeed, sometimes composed verses, but in a woman such archaic romanticism was still excusable. Stanton's smile as he read the girl's message would have betrayed the state of his heart in any age of the world. Comfortably at ease in the plastic chair which automatically adjusted itself to every posture, he read the letter twice. Then he glanced at the door leading into his father's room. Stanton Sr. was hard at work. The young man imprinted a kiss on the sensitized fiber where the girl had traced her message with the electric stylus. Then, refolding the letter, he put it into his breast pocket, on the left side. The temptation assailed him to postpone business a few minutes and have a talk with Alice, to hear her voice and see her face again. The frosted plate of the visualizing autophone would show him her blue eyes, her fascinating mouth, her hair, every quality and expression of her beauty— Three hundred miles apart, they could talk face to face, or three thousand for that matter. He reached for the instrument. Portland 4534 KB, said he. The elder man looked up from his correspondence. Ellsworth, he exclaimed angrily. I warn you, you're driving me too far. See here, father, cried Ellsworth. I protest against... Protest and be damned retorted his father with rising temper. He appeared in the doorway. No more nonsense now. The idea of bringing thoughts of a sweetheart into a business office in this advanced age of sanity and efficiency. 
No partner of mine shall make an ass of himself. Interpret that any way you like. But if you persist and drive me to extremes, don't ever say I didn't warn you. Ellsworth pondered a moment, then hung up the receiver. There, that's better, said his father. Now get to work. Reluctantly, the young man turned to the mass of communications on his desk. Stanton Sr. eyed him a moment, then, nodding and grumbling to himself, returned to his own room, and for a while silence reigned in the office of Stanton and Son. These offices, a little more than nineteen hundred feet aloft, were filled with sunshine and invigorating ozone. Their temperature was automatically regulated by the Federal Hygienic Department apparatus, which likewise adjusted the percentage of oxygen. A delicious breeze percolated through the mesh windows. Cloudless, the sky seen through these windows extended to vast horizons of human activity, all smokeless now. Vapors, smokes, and fogs had been utterly banished from the world. Even rain had been relegated to the position of a nocturnal phenomenon. Agriculture had become as certain as manufacturing. Machinery had liberated mankind from gross forms of drudgery. The slum had long since been wiped out as an intolerable menace. The world in which Stanton lived had developed into a place of reason, order, and security. He could hardly believe that only a century before, in 1916, uncertainties had oppressed mankind. Wars had bled the race. Poverty and wealth had jostled with each other. Diseases had raged, and a haphazard hit or miss laissez-aller had been complacently accepted. Stanton's office typified the newer, better order. The room had not a single corner where dust might collect. Its glass and metal construction harbored no bacteria. The prevailing tints were green and white. On the desk stood a teleone, an autophone, and also the cul-de-sacs of the various receiving tubes from the postal, radiographic, and kinetogramic departments. At the side of the desk, a bronze hopper with descending chutes awaited outgoing business. A wireless chronometer showing the hours in changing red figures on a translucent dial registered the time from midnight till twenty-four o'clock. The Italian method universally adopted. Dismissing Alice from his mind, or trying to, Stanton returned to business and began gathering up the threads of his affairs. The old-fashioned sealed mail was, of course, almost wholly obsolete. It now carried through the magnetic tubes little save strictly personal correspondence, documents, money orders, and circulars. Nearly all business was done with the dictograph, the dictogram, and the tachometer. Stanton turned first to his dictogram. During the night, it had been receiving messages from the federal wireless and been recording them. Now, as he plugged in on the reproducer. These messages began issuing in printed form. He answered such communications as he deemed advisable by radiogram and wireless telephone. The remaining answers he dictated into the tachometer, which swiftly and accurately recorded his speech in the print of the new orthophonic system. These letters were briefer than those of the old days. All polite formulas were omitted, so that communications seemed almost in code. Six six sixteen H W Co. 
45,347. Villa. Cannot fill order till December. Shall we deliver then? G. 11,862. 6.616. Urban Board, London. British President's veto on charter for proposed water freight line to Liverpool makes your proposition impossible. G. 11,862. 6.616. Ferrocarriles Nacionales Rio. Liquidation of account July 1 by Aeropost. G. 11,862. Thus ran the written correspondence. Having finished it, Stanton took up the day's reports of the firm's branches in Reykjavik, Cayo, Madrid, Petrograd, and Tokyo, now capital of the United States of Asia. Stanton's papers, differing in color, size, and thickness according to the nature of the business and the department they referred to, were automatically distributed by the Dactylo Press. As he touched the lever that released the correspondence baskets into the chutes leading to the departments on the floor below, a huge shadow dimmed the room for a second, then vanished. Stanton arose, walked to a window, and peered seaward just in time to catch sight of the twenty-hour limited flyer as it skimmed on its way to London. Only a few minutes before it had released itself by demagnetizing the anchors that had held it in its cradle on top of the 2,000-foot Harlem Tower. Soon it was dwindling and fading on the horizon, far above the vague sea floor that sparkled away and away to the southeastward. Stanton watched it disappear, then returned to his desk, slipped a tobacco clip into his pipe, and lighted it by pressing the knurl that set the rim of the bowl to glowing. Once more he sat down to commune with the news of the day, preparatory to mapping out a new line of business activity in the Orient. Just then his father appeared in the doorway. He coughed nervously. Stanton saw that he had taken off his kimono and resumed his street garb. This was unusual at such an early hour of the day. But Stanton made no comment. The elder man had been getting on his nerves rather badly of late. If he were going out now... So much the better. Instead of speaking to his father, Stanton raised the little visualizing screen at the back of the desk, connected it up with the coil of the amalgamated current events service, and, moving the control lever to commercial, immediately began to watch a miniature presentation of events calculated to interest him. Small wonder that newspapers had long since given up the struggle and died. Technical and business reviews still throve, but news sheets as such were no more. They were practically as dead as alcohol itself, which had now not been manufactured for drinking purposes in more than thirty years. Old wines and liquors still existed, and were somewhat used, but no new stocks were being made. Stanton Sr. evidently wanted to say something of importance, but his son remained obdurately interested in the ACE service. One view in particular engrossed him, a radio movie of the huge new ocean freighter, the J-14341, recently commissioned by the International Traffic Board and now on her maiden voyage from Seattle to the Asiatic naval base at Honolulu. The elder gentleman came and stood beside his son, stood there and also watched the radio movie in silence. The monster vessel appeared on the screen as plainly as though she had been actually before them, though in reality her wirelessly controlled tubular helicoids, 
Archimedean screws operating in longitudinal tubes below the waterline were driving her at 74.6 knots through a sea 4,500 miles distant. A monster, yes, but not the largest afloat. Her dimensions were, in fact, only 1,232 feet length, 124 feet beam, 81 feet depth, and 47 feet draft. Her tubes developed 175,250 horsepower. Her tonnage was rated at 67,500 gross. A freighter, pure and simple, of course. Passengers would as soon have thought of resuscitating the stagecoach as traveling now by surface transportation. Pretty fine, Dad, isn't it? Stanton remarked, leaning back and glancing up at his father. I wonder what the calamity haulers of a hundred years ago would say now. They were always predicting that when coal came to an end, or oil or something, we'd be up against it. Well, coal and oil are all gone, and have been this half-century past. But water power, tidal power, gravitation, and intraspatial magnetic force have more than a thousand times over filled the gap. Stanton Sr. nodded. We've cut in on boundless zones of energy, said he, but that's neither here nor there. What I want to say is this. I've just got a call to run down to Valparaiso. It's now 11.15. If I catch the 11.30 from the Southern Aero Terminal, I can make it back by 15.30 or better and be back by 19 or 20. You can handle things all right today, but mind now, no more of that Alice nonsense. Remember, I'll have you constantly in view. I'm in no mood to be trifled with. Go against my will and I'll cut you off without a penny. A point ten time check, I mean. Young Stanton only shrugged his shoulders. Hasta la vista, said he. Take care of yourself, and if you run across Alvarez, tell him I'll be down next week to beat him eighteen holes on the Guayaquil links. They shook hands and parted with so slight ceremony as would have prefaced a trip to Jersey City in the old days. Alone, Ellsworth leaned back in his plastic chair, closed his eyes, and indulged in a little daydreaming. The smile on his lips seemed to tell that his dreams lay far afield from his office and the cares of business. Returning from his synthetic lunch at 1320, Stanton found two tremendously important messages awaiting him in his dictogram. One of the dictograms was from Margaret Pearl, president of the Himalayan Development Syndicate, offering Stanton a position in its London offices at quite a dizzy figure. He had been expecting the offer for some time, but was agreeably surprised that it should come so soon and so opportunely. Stanton, his eyes shining, gave the matter fifteen minutes' thought. Here at last was his chance to get out of the humdrum rut of Manhattan. Here was his chance to break the paternal chain restraining him. His answer was decisive and to the point. Offer accepted. We'll come immediately if necessary. G. 11,862. By 1345, the message was on Margaret Pearl's desk. The second message was from Alice. Called you at 1250. Can you come this afternoon? Three minutes later, Stanton was in communication with her at her father's bungalow on Peaks Island, where she was spending the two months' vacation allowed her as treasurer of the Intercontinental Adjustment Board.
Her face, mirrored on the frosted slide of the autophone, lighted up with joy as he told her the good news of his new opening. I'm leaving the office at once, he concluded. I'll be with you inside an hour. Now that my salary's going to be even bigger than yours, I don't see how father can object. We'll discuss that when you arrive, interrupted the girl, laughing. Dad is really a serious problem, he answered. In spite of all his boasting about being abreast of the times, he's incorrigibly old-fashioned when it comes to women and... Well, that's a bridge we won't cross till we reach it, again urged Alice. Come along this afternoon and we'll talk it over. They passed a few words of small talk, then Stanton broke the connection. Hastily, he finished up one or two urgent matters and made ready to catch the 1405 Portland Aero Express. Just as he was leaving the office, a call from Panama flashed on the receiver. Damn, he muttered, sitting down again at his desk. Oh, is that you, Dad? He called into the autophone. Yes, it's I, came an irate voice while his father's face, stern and angry, developed on the slide. You scoundrel, I told you I'd keep tabs on this thing, and I have. I just picked up your plan, and by the gods, I'll checkmate it, or... Oh, so, exclaimed Stanton hotly, how can you? I'll show you, you young traitor, I'll fix your little game. I'm jumping the first flyer back to Boston. There, I'll catch a Portland plane. You've still got to reckon with me, Ellsworth. Don't forget that. I told you I'd cut you off if you persisted in this nonsense, and I swear I will. So look out. Go ahead and cut, the younger man retorted. I'm ready to quit anyhow. You mean you really intend to take up with that London offer? I've accepted, haven't I? I suppose you cut in on that, too. Yes, I know, but you don't mean... See here, Governor, Stanton exclaimed decisively. I've had quite enough of this. Alice and I are going to get married, whatever happens. She has asked me, and I have accepted. We love each other, and we're going to get married. What are you going to do about it? The face of Stanton Sr. faded from the slide. The old man had, to use an obsolete phrase, rung off. Ellsworth shoved back the instrument, stood up, and nodded savagely. It had to come to a showdown sooner or later, anyhow, said he. Well, here it is. So much the better. Now I'm off. Taking his ready pack, an ingenious case of traveling necessities for quick trips, which now formed as essential a part of every man's equipment as did his electric stylus itself, he left the office. A few minutes later, he was rushing northeastward on the Portland Aeroline Company's Afternoon Express. The express landed him safely on Portland Tower just a quarter past sixteen, some few minutes late by reason of trouble with the aft anti-gravity stabilizer. Alice was there to meet him as he came down the descensor to the railed landing stage. The shadow of the airliner lay dark on the half-stage as the great ship, with the air whistling into its vacuum tubes, lay fastened by its electromagnets to its cradle. But half the stage was bright under the clear June sunshine at 1,500 feet altitude, and in this sunshine Alice's charming face looked as rosy as a blossom of one of the new rose orchids, most beautiful of the flowers." Their hand-clasp was eloquent, more eloquent than their tongues. 
the young man had so caught the spirit of the new age of rational feminism that he felt no constraint at all in communing with the woman who had wooed and proposed to him. On their way over to Peak's Island in the little harbor plain, and while walking over the crest of the isle, they talked only of impersonal and non-essential things, speaking of the new aerial summer resort now touring the Maine and Nova Scotia coasts, the newest dances, Eric Arvgard's latest edition of phonoplate poems with chromatic vacu-disc accompaniment, and the recent discoveries of Leighton Norsewood in the artificial production of protoplasm. Stanton found this mixture of the serious and the trivial very charming. It typified the new kind of woman, which had now replaced that of the earlier days when even suffrage had been a bone of contention. The 21st century woman, who could motor, swim, fly, dance, golf, discuss business, comment on current events and science, or banter small talk with equal facility. They were equally mysterious, equally adorable and wonderful to each other. Ellsworth thought the girl had never been so charming as he walked beside her up the pathway leading to her father's vitrified bungalow overlooking the surges that endlessly beat against Whitehead across the channel from Cushing's Island. Alice's father put down his book, a book of thin aluminum plates electrically printed, and came to meet them as they mounted the steps. He shook hands cordially with Stanton. So, too, did the girl's mother, They all sat down on the piazza, commanding a splendid view of the sea, along the far horizon of which two or three swift skimming specks marked the flight of transatlantic aircraft. Floor and roof of the piazza were finished with the new infrakinetic tiling, neutral to human beings, but fatal to all forms of insect life. Currents constantly passing from roof to floor instantly killed any fly or mosquito passing the porch rail. After a bit of conversation, followed by supper ordered from the Portland commissary, delivered through the underbay tubes and eaten al fresco on the porch, and after the dishes and refuse had all been shot back to the reduction plant by the return tube, Stanton asked the girl, clumsily enough, a question he found rather hard to utter. "'I've heard the surf is splendid down toward North Point. Shall we take a little stroll that way?' "'Don't stay late, dear,' Alice's mother cautioned her. "'You know the weather service has been wretched the past few weeks. "'The evenings are quite inexcusably chilly.' "'All right, mother,' Alice made answer, "'drawing a shawl of Siltex fiber, "'soft as the fleeciest wool, about her shoulders. "'When they were well away from the bungalow, "'walking toward the crags of the headland, "'along the corrugated glass pavement of the motor boulevard, "'Stanton said,' Well, Alice, things seem to be shaping up pretty well, don't they? In the first place, my anthropometeric chart for this half year, I just got it from the eugenics board yesterday, shows a 9.35% improvement in my physical averages. My curve is now nearly a perfect ellipse, almost as good as yours. So you see, on that score there can be no objection, and the board's license is mine for the asking. Then, in the second place, this new position of mine is going to make our dream a reality. You know, in spite of everything, I've always clung to the old-fashioned idea that the man should earn more than the woman. And now, now there's really no reason why. Why, you understand. Of course, he answered, 
Shall we walk a bit farther? Down on the rocks, maybe? I just love the rocks, said Alice. They're so wild and romantic, and it's terribly hard to find anything romantic, isn't it, in this matter-of-fact 21st century? There will always be romantic nights in the world, darling, just as long as there are lovers, mused the young man. In silence they kept on a while. Dusk was beginning to succeed the glow of sunset. Here man and his wondrous works seemed overborne by nature's greater wonders. The spell of the unchanging sea lay heavy on them both. In the face of that vast moving mystery, speech had become almost an impertinence. All at once lights darted along the boulevard. The snarl of a motor signal startled them from their reverie. Behind them a car was speeding furiously. Stanton drew the girl aside, but the car did not pass. Slowing, it came to a noiseless halt, arrested in full flight by its powerful magneto-adhesive brakes. From it, an elderly, grim-visaged man hastily descended. He advanced. He faced the pair. "'Well, I'm here,' he angrily announced. "'Oh, hello, Dad,' exclaimed Stanton, wholly at ease. "'That you?' "'Yes, it's I. You know what I told you, and—' "'Allow me to present Miss Alice Haynes,' said Stanton, a subtle mockery in his tone. Stanton Sr. gazed curiously and sternly at the young woman who stood smiling beside his son. His eyes widened with astonishment as the muscles of his firmly set jaws relaxed. Though it would be unjust to the young women of 2016 to say that Alice Haynes was the most wonderful, the most beautiful of them all— Yet the old gentleman realized as he gazed for the first time at his son's sweetheart that she was everything that he had expected Ellsworth's wife to be. Yes, even more. Incredible! This was then really the girl who had engineered getting an introduction to his son, who had sent him gifts, once even flowers, who had told him of her love and who had actually proposed— "'Well, I'll be damned,' muttered Stanton Sr. under his breath in the now archaic vernacular. He looked at his son, smiling, confident, and proud, then at the young woman, more fresh and lovely than any radio movie heroine he had ever seen. On the girl's face he saw a noble dignity. Her soft blue eyes compelled his admiration." He noted indications of unusual intelligence in the becoming width of her white brow shaded by silken masses of golden-tinted hair which glowed luminously in the light of the vacu-vibratory lamps on his car. Slowly he raised his hand and dragged his wood-felt hat from his head. The girl, detecting the new glimmer of comprehension in his eyes, impulsively offered her hand with a frank, contagious laugh. "'Don't you really approve of me?' she asked. "'Not even a little bit?' Her smile was pure magic. The old gentleman coughed and took her hand gingerly. He blinked his eyes and shifted his position on the composite paving. In a sudden panic, lest he capitulate too rapidly, he stammered, "'I must positively insist that you do not approve of me,' feigning a pretty pout. "'Why don't you approve of me, Papa Stanton?' "'Papa Stanton!' 
the old gentleman repeated loudly with an attempted anger. Papa Stanton, why, I haven't consented. I, I tell you, young lady. He cleared his throat and rolled his gloves into a ball. Say, are you really the one, the young woman who, who made love to my son? The lovers interrupted him with their laughter, then grew sober as the girl stepped up to Ellsworth's father and placed her hands gently and affectionately upon his shoulders. Oh, Papa Stanton, she confessed. I believe I am, if you put it that way. Yes, I'm guilty. I'm dreadfully guilty. You see... Disgraceful, disgraceful, murmured the father, wanting in vain to escape from the girl, yet thrilled in his heart by the love-filled eyes and affectionate caress of this splendid woman who fulfilled his son's dream of home and happiness. Ellsworth also approached and laid his hand upon his father's shoulder. Then, remembering an odd phrase he had read recently in a queer novel of old New York, he said, Dad, you can't get away with it. Isn't she wonderful? Look at her. Gently he placed his other arm about his sweetheart's shoulders. Stanton Sr. melted. My son, he began. I am angry, you understand. I am very angry. But you are sure that Miss... Miss... Alice, Papa Stanton, laughed the girl. You are sure this is the young that Alice is the same young woman who proposed, and... The lovers laughed again, while Ellsworth's arms tightened about the girl. Yes, Dad, this is surely the same one, the young man affirmed. She certainly proposed to me, but if she hadn't, I'd have done it myself, just a mere matter of detail. What difference does it make, anyhow, who began it, if it's going to end like... like this... And bending, he kissed her luminous soft hair. The old gentleman stared hard at these amazing young people. Then all at once he held out his arms. Come, Alice, said he. Laughing, she threw her arms about his neck and kissed him on both cheeks. He returned the kiss, then holding Alice back at arm's length, smiled upon her, chuckling like a happy boy. It's all right, it's all right, he yielded. I capitulate. What do you want the old man to hand you as a wedding present? A radiometric limousine? A touring plane? Or... Don't bother about trifles, Daddy, laughed Alice, hugging him again, as a good daughter should. Just shake hands with Ellsworth and forgive him. That's the very best present you could make us. Then we'll ride back in the car with you and tell my anxious father and mother... I think father's got a bottle of very ancient Chateau Leclerc that dates way back to 1976 or some such remote period that he'll open. Well, what do you say? In my day, the old gentleman stammered, still haunted by his old superstition. In, in my day? Yes, daddy, but times have changed since then, Alice replied. Then she teased. Come now, be a good daddy and make up with my boy, and let's not keep that Chateau Leclerc waiting. She drew the son's hand and the father's together. Now will you both be good? asked she, a little quaver in her voice. No fool like an old fool, grumbled Stanton Sr. Ellsworth, if you, if you'll overlook. Forget it, governor answered his son with unnecessary energy, as though he too felt a bit lumpy in the throat. 
He gave his father's hand a savage squeeze, then turned and took Alice in his arms once more and kissed her carmine lips. No fool like an old fool, repeated Stanton Sr., turning discreetly toward the motor. I guess I'm hopelessly out of date. The world's sweeping all the old ways mighty fast into the discard. It's a new world. I swear I can't get used to it. Even the ways of romance have changed. Lord, Lord. There's one thing, though, that never changes, Governor, commented Ellsworth, as he took his seat in the car beside Alice, who had found her place without waiting to be helped in. Never changes, and never will, so long as youth and life remain in this world. And that's the way of a man with a maid. You mean the way of a maid with a man, you foolish dear, laughed Alice. We've really always done just the same thing, but you've never known it till lately. That's the only difference. And... But she did not finish, for Ellsworth gathered her yielding body in his arms, and her lips could say no more, because her lover's eager lips upon them muted their feminine philosophy in a kiss. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Julie from A Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. Hi, I'm Misa. And we're going to talk about a story called June 6th, 2016 by George Allen England, first published in Collier's Magazine, April 22nd, 1916. And uh, I think I tipped my hand about what I think about this story, but I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. What did you guys think? Well, as a story, <laughs> as a story, it was a fine imagination of all the neat inventions we'll have in the future. Yeah, tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> when this show comes out. Right. They got to get working on a lot of these things. Yeah. You know what? It reminded me of somebody who was writing as if they wanted a time capsule to be opened. Because he yeah. said, and we do it like this today, and in 100 years, it's going to be like that. As if we, we're not going to remember how they did it 100 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yep. but but he, I, I did think he it was it, it was an interesting projection I mean a storytelling aside it was an interesting projection of where we might be in, and he was on quite a bit so it was interesting in that from that perspective well it's it's an interesting historical artifact of uh, it's like that looking backwards like this is this is the way it's going to be now and now we're looking back and Back, back at you, dear reader, in 1916, and isn't isn't going to be wonderful in the future. Although some, I mean, some of some of the things seem to not other things like, what are you thinking? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Just I, what I was thinking about this story is that there's absolutely nothing that's accurate <laughs> about our reality. He got about half of it, a third of it right. I think no, there were some I mean, interesting things that he got right. There's there's lots of things that are kind of if you squint real hard, uh, you know, you squint real real hard, mm-hmm. you're gonna find some sort of angle that it's kind of like we kind of have that in some cases, but uh, the way you know this is a slice of of life in one day in the, a future, right? So we get that that's why the plot is so terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's what? Because it's <laughs> just the worst unless you you like the sappiest romance sort of stories. It's just Okay, terrible. let's just say he foresaw Marilyn Monroe because that's exactly how Alice, sweet Alice or whatever her name was, acted 
when she was trying to get Daddy to like her. Oh, God, yes. And I know I read it too sweet, but it was that thing. Well, all I could do was see suddenly she turned from a normal person into Marilyn Monroe. And I was like, oh, here's how we can't imagine independent women. Got it. You know. Well, yeah. But he, he, you know what? He got texting. That surprised me. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of, it's sort of right. No, I yeah, mean, no, that was right. But yeah, almost in code, he said, we omit the communications yeah. and with broken words. Yeah. The, the thing when you read it, it looked like a text. Yeah. Okay, it was so hard to read thing, out loud. Oh, I'm sorry, Jesse. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I would just say, like, I mean, one of the things that's impressive is that he has uh, radio movies, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's, that's television. Yes. Mm-hmm. We'll call it that. Uh, but radio movies is television and technically that's how the movies are broadcast to movie theaters now as well right mm-hmm. it's 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 you know sent over the internet it's not a uh actual object anymore um but if you go like if you pick any particular paragraph and you you say okay what what's the technology cuz that's all it really is is showcasing technology and social change mm-hmm. uh between you know, yeah. in 100 years Everything is basically completely wrong. Well, but uh, he, well, he also said he also did say that that they put news stage things on program for what I think they think I'm gonna like. Yeah, which they do. That's yeah. true. That's true. Yeah, yeah, that's that? true. But you sort you you really do have to squint. I mean, one of the things that that's hilarious, right, is that alcohol is illegal. <laughs> Has, has not been manufactured in a long... No, it's not illegal. It, ju- it just isn't manufactured anymore. It. Yet, some, there's still some wine left and some liqueurs, right? So, what we're looking at... England was a socialist, and you, you can sort of see his uh, socialist pushings in this. But uh, what's funny is they did do that. They did make alcohol legal. Not in 1916, right? Okay. Not in 2016, but uh, down the road a bit from 1916, they did. And then that experiment failed just as we, you know, can <laughs> clearly see yeah. from our perspective that was completely failed. But notice how much smoking is like still in fashion. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But, it's like everything's yeah. inverted. Yes, right? yes. But they say it's being it's 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 falling out of favor. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. The, anything. Anything is it's all falling out of favor unless you're sanitized. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think the, looking at the technology that he describes in order to get the effects is kind of looking at it backwards. He's trying to describe I mean, yeah, he's in love with that, but I think what he's really in love with is the idea as you say in a socialist sort of a way, but a labor-saving way. We can all go to these kitchens and get these fantastic meals. We right. can all uh, he got Skype right, I felt. Kind he's of, talking yeah. to his girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the effect of it essentially. And I think what he was going for really was, wouldn't it be great if we could talk face to face like this? Wouldn't it be great if we could, you know, text each other? Wouldn't it be great if we could do these things? And so, yeah, the the way he got there was maybe off, but a lot of the things were right. Now, the, the burning our clothes, which is so sanitary. <laughs> Every day. Smoke, yes. I was like, that was ingenious, <laughs> but no. <laughs> Everything's made of paper, right? right. The knives and forks and spoons and, and plates and cups and clothes and bed clothes. Everything's made of paper and only used once. We could do that. You can buy paper clothes. Um 
but I'm not going to – even though they call it, you know, silk silk uh, paper, right, for underwear, I still don't really <laughs> think that's going to happen. Or maybe it should. But <laughs> no, thank it's you. Just, it's off. <laughs> and, like, it's illegal – when I was talking to Misa before – um, it's illegal to make noise. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's also illegal to be sick. Yeah, and then I said, "What's yeah. what's the consequence of that?" It doesn't say. It doesn't, it doesn't say. Say. I hope it's just a fine, not uh, winding up being one of those dead people who everybody would the progressives would like to use their smoke to, uh, or whatever it is to or cause energy. Ba- yeah, maybe banished to an island where all the refuse people are. I totally want to. Uh, I would totally want to read like a dyst- uh, This is a dystopian, like some. Uh, what's that Harlan Ellison story? You know, with the uh, TikTok man. Oh yeah, repent Harlequins of the TikTok. Yeah, because this is this is a very regimented society. Oh, there's so many rules. Um, no one would think of standing up on the on the Sky Train or you know the uh, subway, whatever it is. It's free. Um, uh, I'd love to have a free uh, mm-hmm. public transit. Yeah. It's a great idea. It would save a lot of money. Um, on the other hand, they don't have money, paper, even plastic money anymore. Everything's aluminum. That, that's interesting yeah. that you said that, though, because when, when I was reading all that, how the air is regulated, the temperature is regulated, I was I automatically went to the dystopian and said, okay, well, well yeah, it's yeah. really easy to poison this air, isn't it? It's like uh, totally. in charge can totally, you know kill this world at the but mm. you're also if you're dressed in paper clothes and you know the uh, rain doesn't work properly you, be- you better have it regulated Reg- regulated weather yeah. yeah 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 well i mean we can do cloud seeding so that's yeah. not completely wrong I just thought how boring and that would be. Um, he's, of course, coming from a time when we have things pretty regulated as we, you know, in our houses, it's much warmer sure. than it would have been then. And But I just was like, oh, how boring. But um, I also liked the idea of his idea of a great resort as a floating island, you know, um, which I guess you can only really do if you have the weather regulated. I hadn't thought about how that affected everything. There's but they some. seem to like it. You know, it's not like a real dystopian future is somebody's sure. fighting against it as the contrast of all the people who don't know any better. These people all just appreciate it while calling each other still governor. Well, his governor would figure it out. You know? I, I thought he might have been like a retired governor. <laughs> That's what I thought right moment. It's like, oh, no, it's just it's it's just uh, the just old fashioned is getting his dead. Yeah. 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 But uh, I mean, taking for example, like e- basically everything's wrong. Uh, it's from this, from the territory of Patagonia all the way to the, to the state of Labrador, yeah. right? Yeah. The, the Pan American, uh, you know, colonies, and then there's the president of of London, uh, of England. Right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. uh, basically, if something is stated in this story, it's it's completely wrong. And, and what's funny is. You could sort of see at any point between now and then how you m- might think something like what mm-hmm. we've got would happen. For example, in the 70s, there was a big push in the United States to try and finally get the United States on the fucking me- metric system. Yeah. Never happened. Mm-hmm. In this story, they're on the metric system. Finally. <laughs> I know. It, that was a dystopian element for me. I couldn't understand anything. <laughs> but it seemed like he was just it, this. I mean, it, it would make sense in this world where there's no war and there's no disease and there's no everything. So he's got these big SWAT. Everybody's cooperating now. We have 
uh, an entire North and South America is the Republic. And, and Asia, yeah. the states of Asia are now a thing. Like, it's because yeah. everybody's cooperating in friends. That's why. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, 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 We're happy. Ship, the ship that they're watching on that uh, radio movie is going to Hawaii, where the Asian fleet is stationed. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It's like, you know, Hawaii wasn't annexed completely by the uh, uh, Americans. It was annexed by the Japanese or something, right? And yeah. now the Empire of Japan is is uh, the Empire of well, what, whatever, the United States of Asia, right? Yeah. And the president of yeah. the president of Asia. Well, that's funny. Yeah. I thought of it as being China-driven. It might have been China. No, it's just interesting the different uh, ways we take. Because a lot is still open for you to take. Because I read that sure. and I told my husband, hey, honey, they made NAFTA really work in this book. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's everything together. <laughs> well, maybe that's the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership oh, or something. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think... It, what was so striking to me is that, yeah, everything is wrong. So the ca- the the governor, right, he has a brand new air car, airplane, uh, from 2016, and it's in the shop. Yeah, it's broken. <laughs> so it's a broken, it's already broken. That's still um, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully not, because it was the anti-grav uh, element that was not working anymore, right? Which is something Let's we hope don't it have. went out when he was trying to start the car. Yeah. Kind of part way on a trip. <laughs> um, but also the the flying vehicles are all auto- controlled by automation from a distance, right? There's a mm. giant transmitter mm-hmm. that controls the Atlantic and the Pacific. Yeah, the, the Tesla thing. Right, yeah, the, the Tesla Google tower. Self-driving Tesla car. Tower. Right. So notice, like we've gone the opposite direction. Everything's backwards. We we've gone the opposite direction. It's not a central thing that controls your vehicle. It's the vehicle itself. So it's more of the Philip K. Dick style. The taxi driver right. is a robot, right? Yeah. Um, so, he, but even when we find out about his car, how, how great a car it is, it can go 250 kilometers an hour, which, by the way, like my car could probably do. How much and is that? And it's not an air car. Being an American, how much is that? That's oh, sorry, kilometers? Like 140, I think 150. Can you just say 250? Yeah, you can say 200, miles. 250 kilometers an hour, okay. 215, something like that. And then there's a, a uh, one of the pictures shows one of the air uh, transatlantic aircraft, right? It says, Stanton peered seaward just in time to catch sight of the 20-hour limited flyer as it skimmed its way to London. Yeah. 20 hours yeah. to London. Yeah. But, I mean, think I guess it... You have to think about where he was coming from. I mean, think how amazing that would have sounded. People were still using wood-burning stoves in 1960, or coal-burning, right? And you had to take the ocean liner that took weeks, and I mean instead of looking at how much he got wrong, I mean, the fact that he got some things right is pretty amazing because he's coming from such a time lag that I'm you not, don't I'm even not, really I'm remember. Not, I'm not pooping on his, um, his, his storytelling abilities. I'm pooping on the idea that science fiction is designed to tell you what the future is going to be like, because this is, this is the most extraordinary story to me because, because it has the date June 6th. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, Paul, we did a Philip K. Dick story that's set in 2016, yes. right? Um, it's it's 
not our 2016, but it's not a specific date, right? This one is like a slice of life from one day, a hundred years from the date it was published. And it just shows you, like, even the people who are, you know, George Allen England wrote a ton of science fiction, a ton of fantastic stuff. He was a smart guy. He can't get basically any one thing right. Well, you're, right? you're focusing on such big things that he got wrong. He, may, he got other small things right. Yeah. 28, Go, 28 million people now live in New York City <laughs> in this story. Well, how many actually live in New York City? About the same as how many lived in 1960. Then what this right, raises but, is... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Right, right. Because, oh. But that that's a, that's a social trend that nobody predicted that the cities... I mean, nobody anywhere predicted that, except for Clifford Simak, maybe. I mean, everybody expected cities would just get bigger and bigger. I mean, sure. if, you go, if you go to, like, say, um, Make Room, Make Room, for example, the Harry Harrison yep. novel, which was written in the 60, 1960s, New York is still a teeming high. He projects a teeming hive of New York City in the 21st century. Um, Brunner and Stand on Zanzibar has a has a overcrowded New York City in the 21st century. Sure. So, I mean, everybody just kept get, nobody really predicted that cities would kind of uh, die out from the inside a bit as they have in our history. So I'm not I'm not going to give him that wrong because everybody thought that. Yeah, but I think I think a lot of people, um, maybe not the people here, but a lot of people think that that's what science fiction is sort of doing, is that it's telling you what the future is going to be like, and that's well, that's where that where's my flying car comes from. Yeah, wait, there are flying cars here. Where's my where's my jetpack <laughs> coming from? Yeah. Right. Where's it's coming from this idea that uh, that's we we were promised these things, yeah. and I, I just love that this one has a specific date <laughs> for all its promises. And we can check and look out the window and see if those are the things that came into reality. And when when we see those gaps between, like, uh, the fact that everybody's obsessed with hygiene in this society, <laughs> I mean, I'm not a I'm not against that. I, I I think we've gone a little bit too crazy with Purell everywhere. Like, mm, you walk to any store and there's Purell everywhere. Um, I think just maybe more washing the hands is probably good but right on it but the thing is is the, the they when we do a story like this and we look at human nature and you say what is human nature like well giving up alcohol as they did in this story or uh something it doesn't seem possible and yet it we kind of did it right for a while and but notice there's no crime in this story. The closest we come is that lady complaining that she pays her taxes and that there's not enough <laughs> rain. The, the temperature is too hot. So the promise for rain. Um, well, and I think, of course, what you bring up here is a bigger picture. Because the big picture is whether it's Philip K. Dick or George England, what makes one a great writer and one somebody who you you say he wrote a lot of science fiction i go oh he did i never heard of him is yeah the human element the human element is that true and is it telling us something new because if all these things are wrong it doesn't really matter the to me the essence of the story was however brief and poorly told was the idea that women's roles had changed and how was it affecting this father-son relationship? Was the father ever going to accept the the girl? And once, and you kind of, 
it, it was a bit interesting until you meet the girl and where the guy failed to actually project and think was, what would that mean to a young woman who was raised with this kind of thinking? What mm-hmm. we had was still a 1960s lady or 1916 lady yeah, yeah. who, you know, in a couple of ways, she was pushed to be a little bit what I would call more modern, but she couldn't hold on to it. And that's hence the Marilyn Monroe-esque, you know, oh, daddy, you know, mm. you're, you're so wonderful. And his heart melted, this wonderful mm-hmm. young woman. And you're like, oh, no. Yeah. Whereas Philip K. Dick would take that and and show us something <laughs> interesting or timeless either way yeah, about he human nature. With his, his, his computer on his desk, you know. Right. It just <laughs> wouldn't want to do all the things. He'd, he'd have a lot more difficulty keeping his job. One, one of the really the, the nice notes I thought, boy, that'd be really good is uh, when the the father is complaining about how they have to pay the, their actual taxes and <laughs> for the actual profits on that actual day <laughs> that they actually made money. Um, Someone's because, <laughs> Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't get to hide it because somebody in the company has been honest. talking, right? Yeah, yeah been, uh, been honest. And that, that is, well, boy, that would be nice because we would be able to have free transportation. We would be able to have... Uh, you know, public transportation yeah. that doesn't require everybody to jam in, right? We'd be able to pay for stuff I like that. I felt the same way. I thought, now this is the kind of socialism I could get behind. It, everybody, CPR, no loopholes, nothing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. how you make it work. But on the other hand, everybody knows where everybody is at all times. And you can, mm-hmm. like, check mm-hmm. in on what your son's phone calls are doing. Yeah, that was kind of that creepy. Creepy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it might be they had a party line. It's not really clear how that like either that is yeah he's he's a shared phone line or well, something. But they yeah. had, like he said you you key in when you get to work, you key in when you get home, so everybody yeah. knows where everybody is. Right, right. And they yeah. thought of it just as being a convenience because you know if somebody's home or not without stopping to think about the Big Brother aspect. Mm. Or the, the potential the, for the, crime. Oh, there's nobody home in this apartment. I can steal exactly. stuff. <laughs> Think about that's good. Well, nobody feels that way. They have everything they need. They don't. They don't need anything. Did you find it was like an ultimate children are to be seen and not heard society? Like, well, yeah. Where were the children? Well, yeah, where were children? Where the children? But you know, reason. Everything is world of of reason, order, and security. No, no noise. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Vanity and efficiency. Like, <laughs> uh-huh. it's it's brave new world without the drugs. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Because Brave New World's got flying cars and people orderly doing things, and there's a nice hierarchy to society, and the the world is a world is properly managed. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Is there dopamine in the in the ozonators? (laughs) It's a it's soma, right? Soma. Soma. soma, Yeah. That explains. You know, uh, there are some, I mean, if you look very closely, uh, the, there's some stuff that he did get, right? I, but yeah. it's it, it's the stuff that's close to his period, too, right? So um, women's suffrage is an assumed thing. Yeah. Um, but it actually wasn't in 1916. Right. It was happening. There was people trying to get it to happen, but it doesn't come in for another few, until after World War Two. Oh. Oh, so World War One. Sorry. That's why the no alcohol, because that was very tightly connected I, to the suffrage uh, movement. 
Yeah, because pro- right. yeah, prohibitions, yeah, they, they kind of worked hand, hand in hand for yeah. a couple of decades until the uh, the prohibition movement finally broke through to get the, the get the amendment. Right, mm-hmm. right. And so uh, the other thing, I, I don't know if this is a real thing, but if it was, uh, I just learned something from this story that I don't think anybody would have known other than by reading this story, that w- every – a leap year, women got the opportunity traditionally to ask men to marry them. I that's know because that because yeah. my friend asked her husband, her fiance, to marry oh, him this leap year. That's uh-huh. fantastic. Yeah. I love yeah. that. It's but a, that was yeah, it's a Sadie Hawkins thing. Yeah, yeah. Huh. you have to have read a lot of old novels with girls in them. I've not heard you it. Know I, no, I, I don't read a lot of romance, so yeah. um, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, you do learn something from old I science fiction. I did love that he was. Uh, I did, yeah, I did love that he was uh, pulling that in. I went, oh my gosh, he used that, huh? Mm-hmm. And I love that your friend was like, quote, traditional. My son. Well, That's I think great. I think her fiance actually said, you know, it's a leap year and it's traditional or op- optional for you to do this, and so she did. Yeah, I love that. That's great. <laughs> They, uh, the, the one thing that's in, I mean, some of the technology we, uh, the way this story is written, I don't think it's designed to have a plot. It's just designed <laughs> to show, show the technology showcase. One of the yeah. things that happens on their way to work is that they hear some guy with his cell phone out. Mm-hmm. The telepathy. And, that was right, interesting. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And this, yeah, the social reaction to him being loud on, on the, it's, it's basically a movie. I got the question is more like a moving sidewalk, kind of like in the high lines, the roads. Yeah. yeah. Like the, the roads must roll these gigantic mm-hmm. moving sidewalks. I wonder if yeah. Heinlein had re- read this story and was inspired Possible. by it. Possible. So was this one, cause I, what I understood from that was he had some sort of antenna and he said telepathic calls. So, is that yeah. just a cell phone, or did he actually mean telepathic? No, no moving my mouth. Didn't it have iridium antenna? Yeah, yes, I think it did. And of course, iridium is the uh, the company that made the. Um, that's the one that has the iridium satellite, so you can have it. It's a sat phone, right? So you can call anywhere in the world. My husband just mentioned that yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, yeah. But um, but they the, could hear the, him talking, right? So it couldn't have just been telepathic on his side. No, no. I think, I mean. Oh, yeah, that, that was what confused me, the telepathic. I wasn't well, sure. Well, 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 okay, so here it is. Um, right. So here, here, take your time, exclaimed Stanton Sr. as a fellow passenger alone. This is no place to use your tele-auto. The other merely shrugged his shoulders as the sliding floor began to stretch aloft up the chute, swift moving in its middle portion, but slower at top and bottom and quite unmindful of the other passengers, continued to hold his little iridium antennae aloft. I protest, sir, insisted Stanton <laughs> Sr. Beg pardon, apology other, but I've just got an urgent telepathic call from Hong Kong, and he did not vanish, but bent his brows with attention, taking the message. A few men and women peered curiously at him, but this latest of all inventions was still recent enough to attract some notice, so I can't, I can't read as well as Julie, unfortunately, but... Oh, you do. I, I think I think it's not telepathic in the sense that it's installed necessarily in his brain because the antennas are exterior, right? right? Message finishes the man. I think it's like channel. a yeah, yeah. It's like a, a Bluetooth. Basically, he's got. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> okay. Right? Yeah. Okay. And um, but uh, even more interesting is that uh, this is the casual mention, right? 
he says, uh, go right along to the office, Miss Clark. I'll get off at the next transversal and go down to the sub-Atlantic tube. <laughs> He's going to go to Europe yeah. uh, in the underground, uh, undersea tunnel to uh, <laughs> do some business and be back later in the day. And that is, uh, yeah, it's wrong. But uh, they do have a, a tunnel between England and France. There you go. Yep. Right? It's not like yeah. these are new ideas completely. Um, and so I think that's the cool part is that because it has this date and it has, I mean, it has, it has email, right? Mm-hmm. It's just yeah. not called email. Yeah. It has television. It's yeah. not called television. They were experimenting with television around the time this story came out. Um, but they, they, you know, it was not as reliable and as good yeah. as in here so and he has the screens that are in all the subways i mean he doesn't say subways but right. the screens yes are, so it's exactly i mean those those are how you see i know in, i noticed that and thought oh just as annoying then as now yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although I think there was a lot of news in there and one of the things yeah. that said is newspapers are completely gone yeah <laughs> yeah right so well we're working on yeah. that <laughs> Close. we're not there yet well i was thinking about him this morning George England. Mm -hmm. I couldn't remember his name, but I was thinking, I wasn't thinking of him as a prolific fantasy and science fiction writer. I was just thinking how much he would love knowing that we read his story and are talking about it. So it could come out on the day he wrote about and how excited and interested he would have been to see what we had. And it made me look around at all the things that we think are so commonplace and appreciate them much more. I mean, I just kind of looked at my life, which is so wonderful in so many ways and just went, I would love being able to show George England this. No, (laughs) you don't have paper clothes, but look at the washing and drying machine. Why would you need them? So much it's, more sanitary exactly than wringing right. it out. And I just was thinking, you don't have to worry about noise now. People even listen to their music on their own little headphones. Just all that stuff. And I was just thinking, what a world of wonders we do live in. That's much better because we're not being regulated to shut up and, all, you know, this kind of thing. So, yeah, I just want to throw that out there to George. Nice. Mm-hmm. So To George. To, to George. George. <laughs> Cheers. Is that the end? Well, no. The, well, yes, it's near the end. But but one thing that I that I liked was um, that you know how they incinerate everything. And he said, "We're thinking of using the dead in a like manner. Yeah. We're yes. not there yeah. yet. We're still using non-commercial cremation." <laughs> I know. I'm so cre- I was so creeped out by that whole thing. <laughs> I thought that was. What do you I mean? wanted to fill in New York Harbor. I couldn't believe this because I'm originally yeah. from Staten Island. And he says, oh, yeah, the one-time battery now obliterated by the concrete fill, which made Staten Island an integral part of the city. So you filled in New York Harbor all the way to Staten Island? <laughs> what the hell? Hey, uh, what's just you I, win I, it? Well, I thought maybe, maybe, because George Allen England's from England, right? He was British, right? Nebraska. Oh, Nebraska. Well, maybe he got his geography wrong, and he was thinking Governor's Island, which is a tiny little island right off of manhattan island near the battery maybe that's what he was thinking and and he just because staten island's like 20 miles down across new york harbor like you wouldn't want to obliterate all new york harbor with a concrete fill how would you like you just gotta accommodate the 28 million people that are oh well that's true but oh my god we bend nature to our will sir 
especially oh. in the 1916s. Uh, well, the, I, yes. That, Speaking of building nature to our wills, did you notice the big eugenics thing? Like, you can't get oh, yeah. married until, yes. unless you're passed by the eugenics board. And yeah. That's exactly what was going on in everybody's mind then, yeah. right? That's it was exactly popular. Uh, what what what's so hilarious about it is that he's got like a percentage, yeah. like his improvement. This is the this is the the fallacy of eugenics, right? Is that we know what good genes are, right? And of course, uh, I was thinking about this on, as I was listening to the radio this morning. Uh, who died recently? Oh, Muhammad Ali, oh, one of the yeah. greatest, self-proclaimed, yeah. and also many people think one of the greatest athletes ever. Mm -hmm. uh, happens to have a genetic condition that causes uh, later life problems. Um, what would have happened to him if he was part of the eugenic system? Hmm. Yeah, and if yeah, he was right? born and they they found it, would they have let him be a great boxer? Would they have even they had him, him be born? Yeah, right? would live, yeah. yeah. That, that's yeah. the thing is is that uh, in looking back at this, you can see uh, what we know what had happened in history. It just shows how fallible people are and yeah. how foolish we are to think that we can know exactly what's going to happen. What we can say is that uh, sometimes we don't understand human nature completely. <laughs> when you can have alcohol just going out of fashion, right? That mm. it's still there's still some reserves left, but for some reason there's no one who wants to fill the market and like make new wine or beer. Who's who's really talking there? That's somebody who doesn't like to drink. Mm. Like I don't like to drink, but I know. I guess I know a little more than George Allen about human nature yeah. after having prohibition in and seeing what happens when you try and change the culture, right? I mean, yeah, we've been making alcohol for thousands of years. Yeah, Turning exactly. that off is, yeah, fool's errand. It'd be like trying to say you can't have marriage anymore, right? Even if you don't think marriage is cool and you don't want to get married, saying to people that they can't get married, it's just going to go underground. They're going to get married underground. They're right? going to just pair off and not fill out the paperwork. I mean, yeah, they'll, well, do, they'll have secret paperwork. Yeah. Well, exactly. <laughs> they'll say their vows to each other in the backyard, but it's going to happen. Well, mm -hmm. um, and it makes me think also when you're talking about the drinking, because I read that book, The Drunken Botanist, which is so great. And she talks about if you ever wondered that people just love to drink, it, they found that rice uh, had been cultivated since maybe 9,000 BC. And they were like, and we found jars from that time. Almost as soon as it was cultivated, they were making rice wine as fast as they possibly could. Yep. I'm like, yep. if that doesn't show you, you know. And, and not just for recreational purposes, but also very practical purposes, oh, right? Sure. Alcohol is a disinfectant. It yeah. kills bugs in, in the liquids you're drinking. Mm -hmm. It's safer um, to drink with some water. It, it, and it has the benefit of trying to make a really crappy day a little less horrible. I'm feeling, right? though, that that's not the initial reason they were. I mean, you know, I think they were just like, this is great, man. Oh, look, and the bugs died, too. Excellent. But also preserves preserves something that can't otherwise be preserved, right? Um, you can store rice in a granary, but you can also store it in, in bottles if it's distilled. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I, it's practical in a lot of for a lot of reasons, but I don't feel like people in 9000 BC were going, well, and here's a good idea. I think things 
just happened the way they happened, you know. What, some of it was, this is, I feel fantastic. I feel terrible there's today. There's one thing left in this story that I, we haven't really touched on, and that is the archaic art of letter writing. Oh, <laughs> which, yeah. I think he got right, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lover. It's gone. Lovers he, do it. That's right. And yeah. he, I noticed, Julie, you took great relish in, in doing the line with uh, where he folded up the letter and put it in front of his heart. <laughs> well, you know, it was it was a typical, wonderful little gesture of the time. And also it, it showed for all the things that we pointed out for the lack of humanity, he when he did invest something in his characters, he was investing the current day humanity of I love her, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a real feeling. And that's not in there much. So when it happened, I liked it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's how he ended it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Let's go. So it, it, I, I. By the way, thank you for reading it. Even though the the paper was um, the scan I got was pretty poor and I couldn't clean it up perfectly. I think you did a pretty great job, even though some of the words are sort of mushed and cut off and uh, stuff. Yeah, far edge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. good. Well, thank you. I uh, did have trouble where sometimes I would get further down the line and go, oh, no, where I guessed what that was off the edge was wrong. Mm-hmm. And I would go back and um, and you don't notice it when you're just reading it to yourself. But it ends like this. Ellsworth gathered her yielding body in his arms and her lips could say no more because her lover's eager lips upon them muted their feminine philosophy in a kiss. <laughs> <laughs> Love conquers all. But, but also, it also allows the uh, feminist uh, push that's in this story. And they use that word feminism, mm-hmm. right? Um, to sort of be uh, drowned out, finally. <laughs> Back to reality, right? She doesn't get to have her say anymore. Yeah, we're, we were just kidding. He will make more in the yeah. end. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, goodness. But it was fun. I'm glad we did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it was you. it was a good story to pick out, although the first time through I was like, what? Um, but actually reading it out loud, as is often the case for me, I really kind of fell in love with it for a lot of odd reasons, you know. Did you? <laughs> Not because it's a great I, story, but all the I think the pictures things. really enhance it, too, because I'm thinking, mm-hmm. looking at it just from, you know, they're wearing paper clothes. I think of the paper clothes that we have, <laughs> which are, you know the disposable oversuits for, you know, crime scenes or something yeah. like that. They're horrible, right? These ones, they look like they're dressed for Edwardian dinner party. Yeah. Um, and I, I actually have a sneaking suspicion that the art came first and that the story followed. Hmm. Huh. Sometimes happened, Wr- but... Written to the pictures, as it were? Yeah. Yeah? I... It, I I just had a sneaking suspicion of that because it is so like you if you look at that desk in the very first picture everything is described in the story right uh, one of the things there is a uh, clock that is etherically uh, connected to a source either in Washington D.C. or something we actually have computers or clocks like that watches like that that take a time signal and calculate. To, but nobody bothers them no. because it just has to be approximately accurate, right? Mm-hmm. The closest minute is fine. So you're saying it was kind of a Pickwick situation, but we got no Dickens out of the deal. So, 
I'm going to need a translation on that, but thank you. Oh, I, I think the because um, Charles Dickens was approached by the publishers of what became the Pickwick Papers because they had a series of sporting uh, sketches that they wanted to mm-hmm. run with verbal sketches. And mm-hmm. Dickens went to them and said, we can do this, but I want to write an actual story that's connected. I'll do it so it goes with your pictures. Right. And after the first chapter or two or whatever, um, then the guy died. The illustrator died. And oh. they oh. and they recruited the illustrator who became Fizz, I think was his nickname. And he is the one who wound up doing almost all the illustrations for the other Dickens books. And mm. Dickens also, just while we're doing Dickens for a second, he's the one who came up with the idea. Of, and also, we're not going to do little sketches. We're going to do monthly installments, and they're going to pay. And they went, no one's going to pay for this all the time. And he goes, oh, yeah, because I'm going to do this thing we're going to call a cliffhanger. They're all going <laughs> to go for it. So he kind of invented the paperback. Yep. Anyway. yep. Yeah. Anyway, so that was the Pickwick thing where they were like, if if they did it the way you pause it then mm. we have these pictures <laughs> but dickens had this you know thing that made characters come alive in a way that mm-hmm. was different and a story julie doesn't know this i know jess and maissa doesn't i know jesse does i am i am descended through charles dickens sister oh. <gasps> hey yeah he's one of my favorite authors oh yeah. me too i just finished reading all his novels this year i mean not all of them in one year but you know, the last one I hadn't read. It's an honor to know of your ancestry, sir. Yes, it is. Yeah, <laughs> years and years ago, I did a project on discovering who my ancestors were. And yeah, it's a, I was talking to my father and oh. talking about his grandmother and yeah, going up the line. Yeah. Wow, that is so great. I don't have his writing ability. <laughs> <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.